we should probably address the significant uh, event in the room here, which is that Matt is no longer with us um, for just this episode, though. He'll be back for the next one. I just about threw up on my laptop. <laughs> yeah, my heart did a little flow then. It's <laughs> uh, like, what the hell do you know that I don't? Yeah. Oh, my God. He handed in his resignation <laughs> yesterday. So rude. Whew. Yeah. Whew. Yep. Holy shit. Welcome back to Random But Memorable, the podcast brought to you by 1Password. We're here to bring you lots of friendly security advice, a roundup of the latest security news, and some very special guests. And if you're enjoying the show, please rate and review us on Apple Podcasts or wherever you get your podcasts. It was some hard news to hear, <laughs> but then softened by the fact Ugh. that he'll be back next time, so it's okay. <laughs> Instead, though, by popular demand, yes. we have the one and only Sarah Tear joining us today. Yay! And by popular demand, you mean me begging. <laughs> Come back, please. No, you are uh, you are a popular guest yes. uh, on the show Ooh, for sure. Lots yes. of people. We get love requests you. to have you back. Yeah, and not just Dave. I think they all work here. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, everyone's like the chemistry's amazing. Get Sarah back on the show. So here you are. It's so nice to be here. You guys are great. Aww. And you. Thank you for letting me come back. I appreciate it. No worries. Yeah. Now, uh, this time, however, Sarah, I will, uh, I'm sorry to say, there is no game in which you can trounce me at the end of the episode, okay? Like, that's no. That's not going to be an occurrence what? today. I am already feeling the worry. Now, Anna, you just said chemistry because I was like, I listened to a couple podcasts ago and the clue was IR, atomic number 70. And I'm like, iridium. It's iridium. I know that. <laughs> so just like every other game show, when you watch along at home, you're going to know all the answers and when you get to actually play the game you're going to be like i don't know yeah blue? mind blank <laughs> I'm, yeah. gonna, I'm not going to know any answers that's what happens yeah so i'm relying on rue at this point because i've heard you you've got a pretty good guest track record here i've done all right with this game and i really like it so that's the only reason you like it though because you do good at it right <laughs> no no i've always liked word word games uh <laughs> right okay <laughs> and yes i'm good at it so <laughs> okay. Oh man. Well, uh, so today, uh, the day we're recording, uh, there's a big Apple event today. It's it's the 14th. Sorry to break the magic. Like we don't record these and publish day of. It's 14th of September. Big Apple event today. We think that there's probably going to be new phones. There's probably going to tell us, and iOS 15 is available right now. And we're gonna have to, <laughs> we're gonna have to go and like immediately hit the submit button on the, on the review for the the big update that we have going out today. Ooh. So much pressure, so much excitement. By the time you hear this, you should already be using the new 1Password browser extension in Safari on iOS. Super exciting. I love it. The release days are always, they're, you know, it's always so much stress, but it's always so much fun to see our new stuff hitting the market as soon as it's available. And the development team, you guys are always so great at making sure whatever those features are, we're like, ha, look at that. We're ready to go. Bam. There it is. So it's always exciting. Yeah. Yeah. This year's a, a, a tricky year for that, of course, because we're, we're, you know, we're in the middle of this big 1Password 8 mm -hmm. push. But we also knew that we couldn't let a let a fall Apple release go by without being there and having some fun with it. So that's what we we did. Exactly. And that's we'll be seeing. I always love these because it's always Dave sitting there going, ooh, I need this. Ooh, I need that. <laughs> and then, you know, trying to figure out when to set the alarms for because you've got to get up early for the pre-launches and all that kind of fun stuff. So I will say I have appreciated the move to the online sales and all 
all that sort of stuff, you know, not having to line up at stores in person at five o'clock in the morning. I do appreciate not having to do that anymore. <laughs> yeah. I like a good recorded Apple event as well, I must say. I'm more of a fan of them than the live shows. They're really good. And I love that building. The, you know, the, the architecture there, it's, oh, it would be amazing to go and like just wander the halls at the Apple Ring, it, you know, just to check it out. It would be amazing. So I find with the produced events, you get to see more of the building and the landscape and the architecture and all of that. So I'm all over that. Yeah, definitely. Yeah. So should we get into some Watchtower Weekly? Yeah, let's do it. All right. Uh, the BBC reports Apple rushes to block, quote, zero-click iPhone spyware. Apple has issued a software patch to block so-called zero-click spyware that could infect iPhones and iPads. Independent researchers identified the flaw, which lets hackers access devices through the iMessage service, even if the users do not click on a link or a file. The problem affects all of Apple's devices and operating systems. Apple said it issued the security update in response to a, quote, maliciously crafted PDF file. University of Toronto's Citizen Lab, which first highlighted the issue, has previously found evidence of zero-click spyware. But, quote, this is the first one where the exploit has been captured so we can find out how it works, said researcher Bill Marzak. Citizen Lab also said the security issue was exploited to plant spyware on a Saudi activist's iPhone, adding that it had high confidence that the Israeli hacker-for-hire firm NSO Group was behind the attack. In a statement to the Reuters news agency, NSO did not confirm or deny that it was behind the spyware, saying only that it would, quote, continue to provide intelligence and law enforcement agencies around the world with life-saving technologies to fight terror and crime. Security experts have said that although the discovery is significant, most users of Apple devices should not be overly concerned, as such attacks are usually highly targeted. Apple said in a blog post that it had issued the iOS 14.8 and iPadOS 14.8 software patches after it became aware of a report that the flaw, quote, may have been actively exploited. Yeah, this one made the rounds internally yesterday where uh, our security team was saying, hey, everyone, go update your devices immediately. Like, don't yeah. don't like finish your work day. Don't wait for Apple to tell you that there's an update. Don't do any <laughs> yes. of that. Just yeah. stop everything and go to stop update. Stop and do it. Yeah. And I did. I updated all the stuff. I, I, I got almost all of them. Uh, Carrie's phone is still on 14.7, so or whatever it was before. It's tricky with all of the small people. I know because we've got between the kids now and, you know, you run around to try and find all the devices. I think that's the hardest part is, you know, making sure when, when you've got, you know, multiple devices, mm. you get them all updated. It's it's not as easy as, oh, let me just update my phone. I wish it was, but. It's mostly about finding power plugs for all of them so they can be plugged in yeah. while they run the updates. Otherwise they moan at you, right? Yeah. yeah. And then it's the old iPad in the drawer that you only use when the cousins come over for playing Minecraft on and it's like oh shit I gotta update that too so it's like okay everything's dead everything needs to get updated you know how much bandwidth does my wi-fi have let's go <laughs> it's like an assembly line very much so yeah so yeah go uh, go update it was interesting when I was on vacation a couple weeks ago there was an update that came through and the notification persisted on the lock screen like across device going to sleep me using the device and everything every time I put the phone to sleep and picked it back up again there was the little software update notification on the lock screen. And I remember seeing that. And the, about the third time I saw it, I was like, okay, Apple clearly wants me to install this one mm. right away. Like this is not a, this one's not, not optional as far as they're concerned. They want this done as soon as possible. And so I made sure I installed it. I didn't ever go back and see what the, what the issue was there. But I can imagine this one will have the same same traction. It shouldn't take long. It'll be up and everyone will be quickly updated. And hopefully, you know, not any big issues with it. But I find that's the thing nowadays, right? There seems to be more and more of these potential breaks and active patches. And, you know, how can we get around these things even easier? And I think that's 
a good segue into the next story, which was talking about Apple again, and they're delaying the controversial child protection features after a privacy outcry. This was originally reported on The Verge, and they followed up again. Apple is delaying its child protection features announced last month, including controversial features that would allow scanning of users' photos for child sexual abuse material, CSAM, following intense criticism that the change could diminish user privacy. The changes have been scheduled to roll out later this year, and Apple had said in a statement to The Verge, Last month, we announced plans for features intended to help protect children from predators who use communication tools to recruit and exploit them and limit the spread of child sexual abuse material. Based on feedback from customers, advocacy groups, researchers, and others, we have decided to take additional time over the coming months to collect input and make improvements before releasing these critically important child safety features. The Electronic Frontier Foundation said in a statement that the new system, however well-intended, would quote, break key promises of the messenger's encryption itself and open the back door to broader abuses. Yeah, how do we feel? I'm a little surprised, but I'm also not surprised. It's... You know, when you look at the previous story we just talked about with exploits and how easy it seems to be for people to gain access to these backdoor things, that this kind of a backdoor feature, which is encryption messages and all that kind of stuff like that they're talking about, it seems like it's one more possible target for attackers to get into your information. So it's tricky. I'm happy to see that they've pumped the brakes on this one a little bit from the point of view of wanting to make sure that it's done correctly because i don't think that anyone can argue against the intent behind it but i think that the technical implementation of it definitely is something that needs to undergo some some review to make sure that apple's not giving ground on what i think have been its key strengths throughout the years of sort of you know privacy and very similar to to our stance like the less we know about you the better we don't we can't see your data like this is it's your data is yours you don't have to worry about people peeping in on it so i think that that's Mm -hmm. this is the right move from that point of view do you think it was just the bad press alone that made them do this or i I mean it certainly came into play Mm. right like the 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 press behind this i think is the overwhelming reaction to this i think definitely played a factor here i have to say hopefully they heard matt and rue talking about it on the podcast too (laughs) but that was that was where i had heard you know and i'm listening and i'm like well of course we want them doing this and all that kind of stuff and then i think it was matt had brought up you know well what if you've got you know pictures of your kids and all that and i thought well I think most parents have got those pictures of their kids in the bathtub. Yes, there's the well-placed bubbles and, you know, little rubber duckies and all that kind of stuff. But these aren't for public consumption. They aren't for the world to see. They're my, my personal family photos that you show grandma and grandpa. But what happens if, you know, all of a sudden they're in a database somewhere and, you know, I'm not American, so it's not the FBI at my door. But what happens if that ends up in a database and I'm flagged somehow? And who's the judge of that material? Is, is it any sort of picture of an underage child? and then all of a sudden everything is getting flagged like at what point do we overwhelm the system and it no longer becomes a useful tool for crime enforcement it's tricky yeah for sure all right let's see let's jump ahead to the next one here the register is reporting that proton mail has deleted the we don't log your ip quote from their website after french climate activist reportedly arrested encrypted email service proton mail has become embroiled in a privacy scandal after responding to a legal request to hand over to Swiss police, a user's IP address and details of the devices he used to access his mailbox, resulting in the netizen's arrest. After data from ProtonMail was handed to the Swiss and then French police, the author of a left-wing political activist's blog in France wrote that a group called Youth for Climate had been targeted. The police also noticed that the collective communicated via ProtonMail email address. They therefore 
sent a requisition via Europol to the Swiss company managing the messaging system in order to find out the identity of the creator of the address. ProtonMail responded to this request by providing the IP address and the fingerprint of the browser used by the collective. ProtonMail has said in the past that it does not collect user data and implements end-to-end encryption, and repeated that over the weekend saying, quote, under no circumstances, however, can our encryption be bypassed, meaning emails, attachments, calendars, files, etc. cannot be compromised by legal orders. This statement, while bold, seems to be born out of the service's privacy policy, which states that it can access the following user information, sender and recipient email addresses, the IP address incoming messages originated from, message, subject, and message sent and received times. These are all standard unencrypted information from email headers, though it appears that ProtonMail's previous promises about user information logging were a bit overgenerous. Back in January this year, the company's homepage stated, quote, no personal information is required to create your secure email account. By default, we do not keep any IP logs, which can be linked to your anonymous email account. Your privacy comes first. In a statement posted to Reddit, ProtonMail said, quote, In this case, Proton received a legally binding order from the Swiss Federal Department of Justice, which we are obligated to comply with. There was no possibility to appeal or fight this particular request because an act contrary to Swiss law did in fact take place. Following the backlash, Proton Mail has welcomed Sir Tim Berners-Lee to its advisory board, who claimed, quote, I am a firm supporter of privacy, and Proton's values to give people control of their data are closely aligned to my vision of the web at its full potential. Yeah, this one's very interesting, and it, it really harkens back to our discussion with Aral Balkan uh, on the last episode. Or, and is that coming into this episode, too? Is part two in this episode? It okay, is, so yeah. Part two is in this episode. Coming up yeah. next. <laughs> our discussion with Aral, which was in the last episode and carries over into this one about sort of the big web versus the small web. And I'm sure Aral would tell me Proton Mail is not the small <laughs> web. <laughs> so, yeah, very, very interesting uh, turn of mm. events here for Proton Mail. It's interesting they've obeyed the requests from French police here because they claim that their servers are in Switzerland and kind of abiding by Swiss laws. And as well, it's an activist group and not necessarily, they're not cyber criminals. I find that strange. Yeah. Yeah. The more of the political targeting and the, you know, I, I don't like what this group is saying. I don't like what this group is saying. And how do we make sure we're controlling what people are saying, which is, you know, it, it does question how far can people go to find out this information. And it is interesting that they've had to go back and edit their website now to say, I guess we do indeed log your IP address. But you have to hope that everything else, like they're saying, is encrypted. I know for us, that's always been a big big important part of how we do things is you know we don't have access we, we have no idea what's going on and in previous models before we had our, our new memberships which is just so much easier when we had just the strand standard licensing and you know someone would forget a password and oh that was heartbreaking to say you know we, we can't help you like there's no way to help you which is the reality behind the fact that we have nothing of their information we, we can't help you so even if there were to be you know a police request to turn over records there there are no records to turn over but it looks like in this case they had said you know we don't have any records. Well, we do have those records, but not <laughs> all of the records, which certainly calls into question how much you want to trust everything else they're saying. Yeah. Proton Mail's privacy policy was updated yesterday. Now says, if you are breaking Swiss law, Proton Mail can be legally compelled to log your IP address as part of a Swiss criminal investigation, which is like some real yeah. focused language. <laughs> <laughs> it's very confusing. Yeah. Those <laughs> things that make me glad I'm not a lawyer. <laughs> Yeah. yeah. So, Rue, it looks like we have another one here. We do, yes. I'll take a stab at it. Oh, yeah. Oh, look at this. This is going to be great. Yeah. 
Good luck with this one, Sarah. I see the comment here that says, good luck with this rue. So I feel like I'm setting myself up for disaster, yeah. but we'll see how it I goes. I mean, I wanted to see rue try and fail at this one. but Look, look, it's obviously uh, Glib Alexander Ivanov Topinskit. Top- <laughs> Topinstev uh, is, is who we're talking about okay, here. Okay, now I'll say that quickly. <laughs> yeah, uh, Glib Alexander Ivanov Topinstev. Oh, not that. Yeah. So you do want to do this one. Cause that's, there you go, Sarah. <laughs> that's not what's going to come out of my mouth. <laughs> <laughs> all right. All right. Okay. So uh, The Verge is reporting that vape receipts helped the Department of Justice nab a man who allegedly botnetted thousands of passwords. Done in by your own vaping is really like, why are you in prison? Well, I got caught because I was vaping. Uh, a 28-year-old Ukrainian national, Glib Alexander Ivanov Tolpinstev, has been indicted by the Department of Justice for allegedly using a botnet to brute force people's passwords and then selling the credentials on a dark web store ominously called The Marketplace, capital T, capital M. That's pretty good. Not to be confused with Amazon Marketplace. <laughs> no, he was not selling these on Amazon Marketplace. According to the Department of Justice, the hacker bragged that he was able to get at least 2,000 logins a week, and he allegedly told one of the Marketplace's admins that he had cracked over 20,000 passwords. The indictment, which can be read in full below, alleges that the hacker talked about controlling a botnet, which is essentially a group of computers whose users don't know they are infected with malware. He's accused of using those computers' power to guess people's passwords over and over far faster than he could with his own hardware. Then, according to the Department of Justice, he would sell those passwords to cybercriminals who use them to carry out fraudulent activities such as ransomware attacks or even accessing someone's home security cameras. Some of the alleged victims are perhaps a bit surprising. The criminal complaint lists two victims who were interviewed. One ran an IT business. The other was a security systems consultant who did work for the Department of Corrections. While the two victim systems are only a small portion of the over 6,000 compromised logins, they are just a drop in the ocean for the marketplace. According to the complaint, vendors on the site are selling access to over 700,000 machines, and past buyers have used info purchased on the marketplace to carry out over $100 million of fraud. According to a report by CyberScoop, simple mistakes made it easier for investigators to accuse Ivanov Tolpinstev. The IRS was granted access to email addresses with a warrant and was able to link the alleged hackers to them using receipts from local vape and smoke shops, scans of his passport, and pictures on Google Photos. The emails also allegedly linked him to other accounts and identities that were related to the marketplace where the passwords were sold. The DOJ says that if Ivanov Tolpinstev is found guilty, he could face up to 17 years in prison and would have to hand over more than $80,000 that he allegedly made from selling information. This feels a little bit like a dumb criminal story. <laughs> like very just out in the open. Yeah. <laughs> posting updates to Instagram. <laughs> captured 2000 more passwords, y'all. Yeah. It's cool that they tracked him down using vape receipts and things. Probably not the plot of the next big blockbuster crime thriller, but still. <laughs> it started out like that. It was like, "Oh, look what we're doing. We're going to hack onto all these machines and then like you say, it's you know, pictures of me on Instagram, <laughs> putting stuff in my bag. <laughs> Look at me. Like, no, no, that's not how we do this. Although, you know, a life of crime is never, never the best way to go. And, you know, 17 years in prison is not a drop in the bucket. Nice. Although I am surprised 80,000 is all that he allegedly made from selling the information. Yeah. You know, it, it feels like, you know, you've got that much information. You could be you know, making a bigger drop in the bucket. If the marketplace, if they're looking at, they said here above a hundred million dollars of worth of fraud and he only made 80 grand. Yeah. Like, boy's got to work on his game. <laughs> <laughs> All right. 
right, so we got part two of our interview with Aral Balkan, uh, and I think what Anna's probably going to do is just go <laughs> ahead and uh, drop that in here. Those those words have never made it to the show, have they, Anna? Drop it in here? No, they have. Yeah. Yeah. Quite a few okay. times, because that's all you give me. Okay. What else can I use? <laughs> Ah, it's my favorite thing. Oh, I love it. Nice. I was going to say, I'm sure I've heard drop in here. I thought that was like the tagline. God, yeah. It. Oh, it's, it's, it is. Uh, nobody likes it. <laughs> nice. So uh, on the last episode, you heard part one of my interview with the Raw Balkan. It was such a wonderful chat and we covered so many topics that we had to split it into two. And part two starts now. That was good. Yeah. <laughs> Thanks. That was like you had prepared something. Nice. Yeah. You don't uh, ever have to say drop it in here ever again. <laughs> oh, no. No, well, it's going to happen. I mean, I will, though. It will, yeah. Every time. <laughs> Every time. Dropping by for a chat today is Aral Balkan. Aral is co-founder of the Small Technology Foundation, an independent not-for-profit working on building the small web and providing tools designed to increase human welfare, not corporate profits. A self-proclaimed cyborg rights activist, Aral fights the good fight, advocating for regulation of surveillance capitalism while carrying out research and investment into ethical alternatives. Aral, it's really great to have you here today. Michael, it's great to be here. Thank you for having me. Okay, let's bring it back to design. For me, because you touched on a few points that <laughs> that I think are, are really well, they fit nicely into my next question. <laughs> All right, talking about sort of you know a surveillance program built under one one administration now and under the control of a different administration and then changed hands again. Yeah, what does ethical design mean to you? And like, how are some of your small tech tools different to their big tech? alternatives? Well, ethical design is a difficult concept, I think. When we first started using the term, I thought that it would be very clear what it meant. But it's one of those terms that can be used and abused. Because of course, ethics, it's all about the gray areas. When I started using the term ethical design, I wanted to contrast it to unethical design, the design of mainstream big tech companies where, you know, it's built on manipulation, it's built on extraction, where you're presenting with choices that are in the company's interests. So ethical design would be the opposite of that. So how do we design things that are in the interests of the people that are going to be using it? But there are a couple of issues with that, and that's why we don't actually use the term any longer, and that's why we have the small tech principles now, where we try to outline the core principles clearly without tying it into a term that's been sort of abused by the mainstream now. Because when we first started using it, it wasn't a huge thing. People were kind of looking at us like, what do you mean? And then then larger companies start coming into it and they're like, oh, yes, we're being very ethical in our design processes now. <laughs> I was like, no, you're not. So what are the principles? I think if we break it down into principles, so what we call the small tech principles today are things like being non-colonial in design. So you can practice design in one of two major ways. One, you designing for the them, the other. So you have you are the one with the expertise. You're probably the one with the wealth. And you're designing for the other. And the other, we could maybe call them, you know, let's not even call them humans or people anymore. Let's call them some other term like user. And that will make it easier for us to do bad things to them. Because the more you remove someone from their humanity, the easier it is to, you know, not remind yourself constantly that they're people. The other way is to design for yourself, a non-colonial way. 
and to understand that you can only best design for yourself and to build things in a way where other groups can take it and make it their own, where you do not have to be at the center of this process, where you're not centering yourself as part of this process. And that's what I would call non-colonial design. And it flies in the face of traditional design, because traditional design is the Steve Jobs mode of design that we know, right? Where you have a genius, usually a white man, and he's like, this is how things are going to be, and everyone else is going to love it. So non-colonial design is the absolute opposite of that where you say, okay, look, I have my own biases, I have my own cultural background, I can best make things for myself and people like me. And this is why it's very important that if I want to be able to reach a wider audience, then my team has to be diverse, so that by designing for ourselves, we can design for a diverse audience. And even then, though, through principles like making what we do free and open, we enable other groups to take it and make it their own, where, where they don't have to say, okay, well, can you do this for us? Can you do this for us? No, they can do it themselves. So principles like that, non-colonialism, being free and open source, it's a prerequisite, it's definitely not enough. Uh, being non-commercial. So, of course, this is kind of like a what? You want to do technology and it's non-commercial? You don't want to be a billionaire? No. I mean, if we become a billionaire with what we're doing, billionaires with what we're doing, we failed. That is our absolute failure mode. Because we're trying to build technology that scales not vertically, like the technology of Silicon Valley scales, by basically centralizing wealth and power, but technology that scales horizontally, where if what we're doing is successful and becomes more successful, we do not ourselves get bigger and bigger and bigger. Instead, it spreads out. So that's what we're trying to do with the small web and how we're designing it. So we're trying to decenter ourselves from what we're designing so that it's not reliant on us getting bigger and bigger and bigger for the thing that we're building to become successful. And this is non-colonial design. So that's the, that's the core of it, really. So that's what I would say is at the core of small technology and the small web as we're trying to envision it and build it. Can the small web be as easy or even easier to use than the big web? It, it seems like a very difficult position and, and proposition here. It is, and we don't have the infrastructure for it, and that's really what I'm working on right now. To imagine what the small web is, and it doesn't exist right now, but to imagine what it is, imagine that each one of us had their own place on the web, say at your own domain. So I was maybe ar.al is my domain, and maybe michaelfay.org is yours, and everyone has their own place on the web. But this didn't require any technical knowledge for them to set up so that you can just go to, say, any website and you can just say, hey, I want this name and I want my own site here. And it's a 30 second process as easy as signing up for Facebook. And boom, you have your own site now. OK, but what kind of site it's, is, is this a brochure? What is it? Is it a Wix site? No. Imagine that you have a site where you can talk to anyone else's site as well, where people know where to find you because of the name of that site, and where you can talk privately to other people, and you can be public. You can do all the things we do on the web today, posts, stuff, etc. And you own and control it because it's actually running either on your own virtual private server that got set up for you while you were signing up within that 30 seconds, and that's what I'm working on right now. Or maybe for some people who have greater threat models or who want more control, maybe it's running on a Raspberry Pi that they have under their table. That's not for everyone. 
but the version of it where you go on the web and you sign up within 30 seconds and you're on this system is for everyone. It is an everyday thing. So that's my vision for the small web. If we all have our own places, then we basically solve some of the issues that we have with peer-to-peer systems. The two major ones are findability and availability. Peer-to-peer is great until you need to be sure that someone is always reachable. Peer-to-peer is great until you try to find someone, right? These are not solved problems in peer-to-peer. So we can sidestep that by basically having everyone have their own place on the web. And this doesn't have to be a commercial system. Initially, it has to be with what we're building because we're a tiny two-person organization. So the first version of it, which is going to be at small-web.org, we're going to charge for it because we have to, because we'll be charged by the VPS provider, by the DNS provider, et cetera. So within the current system, we have to charge for it. We're hopefully going to charge not a lot for it, just whatever keeps us sustainable. But in the future... This lends itself to non-commercial means as well. So we worked with the city of Ghent on a prototype. And the idea there was that the city of Ghent in Belgium would give every one of their citizens one of these places on the web. And then they could use it both to communicate with each other, both to publish what they're doing, but also to communicate with the city as well, without the city violating their privacy, because they would keep control over their own data as well. And of course, the key thing in all of this is this has to be a beautiful everyday thing that doesn't require any technical knowledge for you to work with that is useful for doing the basic things that we want to do with technology. Talk to one another. You know, we use it for, what do we use technology for today? To have face-to-face conversations through things like FaceTime, to chat to each other through text messages, to send each other things. We can do all of these things through this sort of a system without having a centralized authority in the middle, without having Google or Facebook or Apple in the middle, or us, without having Small Technology Foundation in the middle. Because again, with this system, you will own the whole system. If you don't own the hardware for the VPS, you can move it to some other VPS provider. You want to own the hardware as well, then put it on a Raspberry Pi or a small single board computer. So that's my vision for the small web. Does that make sense? Yeah, yeah, absolutely. I I love, you and I have, I think so far, been talking in such abstracts that it was... I needed that concrete example. I needed that that sort of anchoring in, in the vision, right? I, I had a feeling, yeah. And it's important to do that as well because so many people talk in the abstracts and it's important because the conversations we're having have philosophical aspects. They're about society. They're not just about technology or these tools. But at the same time, I think a lot of people have these abstract conversations about technology without a grounding, without an understanding of the technical aspects. And the technical aspects are key. I mean, you know, I don't think it is an over-exaggeration to say that the future of our freedoms and maybe even the future of personhood is going to come down to technical differences between data structures in the future. So these things matter. And we need to understand them, those of us who are trying to design alternatives. Right. Yes, absolutely. Yes. And remove the need for that understanding from everybody else, for the most part. Exactly. But not in an Apple sort of way, necessarily. What we can do, and this comes back to design, what we can do is we can have beautiful defaults and we can keep the seams, but we can layer the seams. So it's not one or the other. It's not, oh, either you have great defaults, but you know you can't look beyond the curtain to see you know the wizard behind, or you have to have the seams just everywhere and you can't use it, which is kind of like what the free and open source world has traditionally been. 
no, we can have the best of both worlds. We can have beautiful defaults, a beautiful experience. You never want to, you know, look beyond it. Perfectly fine. You don't have to. But if you do, then it's easy, right? The screws are there. You can unscrew it and you can look behind it, both in the hardware and the software, metaphorically speaking. Yeah, yeah. So we have a question that we ask all of our guests, and I, I, this will be no exception. Okay. What are your tips for our listeners on how they can protect and take control of their data? Well, okay, that's a hard one. What are my tips on how you can protect and take control of your data? Well, understand, first of all, it's not just about the data. So everything that you use, the hardware, the software, the services, these all play into that equation. I think first and foremost, it's also important to have some sort of idea of your threat model. So, you know, are you a government whistleblower and do you possibly have the U.S. government tracking you down? If you are being targeted directly by a military of a major government, then you're probably screwed to some degree, right? This is not everyone's threat model. There are whole organizations devoted to protecting people who are the target of governments, but you're probably not. So your biggest threat is probably from corporations, corporations like Google, corporations like Facebook, etc. There are several things you can do. The easiest, which, you know, you hear people throw about as if it's so easy to do, just don't use them. Just don't use Facebook. <laughs> oh, sure. And uh, how do you propose I keep up with my child's school because they're on Facebook? Well, I think that's when we come to what you can actually do. Maybe talk to your school. You know, maybe talk to your child's school and say, hey... Maybe you shouldn't be on Facebook. Maybe there are alternatives that we can use, like maybe NextCloud. Or maybe talk to your school and say, I heard that we were going to get Chromebooks. I'm not comfortable with that. I don't want to normalize surveillance in our schools. Why don't you look at something like, I don't know, Pine64? They have laptops that are completely free and open, hugely usable, hugely hackable for learning about technology on. They're actually cheaper than Chromebooks. And why don't we look at that? So I think it's those sort of things where you can have a real impact, where you show the institutions around you, the people around you in your local community, that this does really matter for you, that this is important, that you talk to them about these things, about the ramifications. If we don't resist these surveillance devices and the proliferation of them, I would say get involved politically if you can. You know, even at the very local level or higher, this is not just a technological problem. This is not something that no matter how many lines of code I write or anyone else writes, we're not going to solve it just by writing lines of code, right? I mean, take the best case scenario with what I'm building with the small web. Let's say it's successful. Let's say it's really successful. Governments right now all around the world are trying to backdoor end-to-end encryption. And hey, I'm building a system that lets you talk privately to people with end-to-end encryption. I'm not going to backdoor it. So what happens if it becomes successful? I might have a knock on the door and they say, well, here's what we want you to do. What happens if I say no? Then I probably go to jail at that point. This is what I told the members of parliament at the European Parliament when I spoke there. Yulia Reda of the Pirate Party asked me, what do you want from us? And all I said to her was, I just want you to do your job so in five years' time, you know, those of us who are building these alternatives are not behind bars. So that comes down to legislation. Get involved politically. Affect legislation. Just talk to people about this. Personally, if you want to protect yourself, look at alternatives and stop gaps that are out there. I wish I could say, instead of X company, go to Y company, because that would be the easy answer within the system we live in, right? There is no easy answer. Support those who are working for alternatives. 
And that's it, really. I mean, it's, it, there's no easy... I wish there was an easier answer. I wish I didn't have to ramble on for minutes to try and, and tackle this. <laughs> but there isn't. But also, at the same time, everything you do matters. Everything you do and everything you don't do matters. So don't think it's too small. Don't think it won't have an effect because it does. And uh, that's, that's really where I'd love to leave it. That's awesome. So to bring it home, where do folks go to find out more about you and the Small Technology Foundation? Well, if you'd like to learn more about what we do at the Small Technology Foundation, what we're working on with the small web, go to small-tech.org. We do have a, a monthly live stream that we do called Small is Beautiful that Laura and I do. And uh, yeah, you can find all the other links and stuff from there. Laurel, thank you so much for being on today. That was great. Thank you as well. Really enjoyed having you. Okay, so we've got Ask One Password this week. Ooh. So Dan on Twitter has sent us a link to a funny YouTube sketch from Alessander Beckett King about forgetting a password in olden times and what that would be like. I'll include a couple of sound bites from it now so folks can get an idea of what it's like. What be the password? Mercy, friend, I have forgotten it. <sighs> All right, what be thy mother's maiden name? Sorry, what? The maiden name of thy mother. What be it? Uh, Dung Heap. And where wert thou born? Uh, Dung Heap. Right, and the name of thy first pet? Uh, again. Dung Heap? Yeah, it's Dung Heap. <laughs> right, got it. It's Dung Heap all the way. Finally, proveth thou truly beest a man. I do what? Which squares containeth lanterns? I don't understand. Sorry, this session is timed out. No, uh, hold on. It's so funny. So I enjoyed that. But Dan says that there might be a random but memorable game idea in here somewhere. So what do you guys think about a medieval password related game? Well, yeah, I'll have to go check out the YouTube video. And then, oh, you haven't uh, watched it yet? Oh, it's so funny. I told you to watch it, Rue. Oh, did you tell me to watch it? Yeah. <laughs> okay. I feel like that could have been a testing question on the, the little placard he holds up. Was I supposed to watch oh, this? It, it totally. <laughs> <laughs> I was supposed to watch <laughs> <laughs> All right, I will watch this and uh, then I'll report back. I'll report back. Some yes. pre Apple event watching. Yeah. I think if anyone can come up with some sort of medieval password related game, it will be Matt because he's got a specific talent for coming up with password related games, it seems. Yeah, for sure. Nice. Okay, shall we move on to three word password? Although it's four word password this week. Yes. Special edition. I feel cheated. Yes. The single <laughs> worst way to share a password. We use cryptic clues to guess the three, but this week the four mystery words created by our memorable password generator. I was already sweating thinking I had to guess three words. Now the pressure has just increased. I'm sorry. Oh, the palms are sweaty. <laughs> That's really good. Okay. Oh, the, the document is changing magically before Here me. Here we go. Some hidden clues. Oh, this seems scary. So the first one is something that has been discarded or thrown away, particularly from a ship or stranded in a isolated place. Also a popular film best known for making people cry at a volleyball. Oh, well, it's Castaway. Yeah. I was going to say, I know this one. Yay. Old Wilson. I'm so sorry. I should have I should have let you answer. No, nope, uh, that's I, it's it's just always exciting when you know the answer. It's like, yes. So don't worry. I'll let you get them all because <laughs> there's a chance that I'm not going to know <laughs> any of them. Uh, so a term used colloquially to mean exaggerated or uncontrollable emotion or excitement. In the 19th century, it was considered a diagnosable physical illness or a change of self-awareness. It is also the fourth studio album by English rock band Def Leppard. Did you know that the drummer from Def Leppard 
only has one arm. He has a limb difference. Whoa. Yeah. It's amazing. I actually think I know this one. Oh, oh. Seraph, what is it? I believe it's Hysteria. It is Hysteria. Yes. That's awesome. Fantastic. Okay, so two out of four. So the next one is the state of being well known for some bad quality or deed and having a reputation of the worst kind, an evil, criminal, or wicked act that is publicly known. I have a guess. I don't know if you want to go, Rue, because you, you know, we're kind of back and forth. I don't know if you want to guess or... Is it is it infamous? It is almost infamous, yeah. Oh, I was going to say notorious. Oh, sorry. Sorry, hold on. Is it infamy? It is infamy. Yeah, okay. well done. Okay, well, I was way off then. <laughs> it is the, the state of being infamous. Infamy. You're making a good team here. Yes. So, final one. A form of musical articulation in modern notation, it signifies a note of shortened duration, separated from the note that may follow by silence. In Italian, the word means detached or disconnected. Mm. Do you have this one, Sarah? Uh, not off my head, and I feel like my uh, grade school music teacher would be <laughs> very upset that I have nothing. I was going to say staccato, but I was thinking that was the notes that jump around. Is it staccato? It is staccato. Oh, yeah! So that's all rude. Good job. I should have gone with my instincts. You got you to gotta go with your gut in this one. That's what I found works really well. Nice. nice. Oh. Did it. Four words. Easy. I'm so happy. I'm so happy. This, this, <laughs> I feel there's a little bit of a redemption from last week where we stumbled so a bit. Castaway, Hysteria, Infamy, Staccato. Fantastic. God, I love this game. I hope it never ends. There you go. I never know what you unlock with this four-word password. There's, there's someone out there in the world who is using these passwords. <laughs> <laughs> They're hearing these and going, that's my next one. Yeah. It is a, just a fun game to play with yourself, just hitting the random generator button, to be honest. Just seeing all the random weird words that come up. I have to say that's why this game is so intimidating because I'll use the random password generator and it'll put three words in front of me and I feel like I have lost every game in life because I have no idea what any of those words mean. <laughs> I just sit there looking and, you know, I, I slowly creep up on the redo it button because <laughs> I don't even know what they mean and it's just yeah <laughs> it makes me question how much I know in life it's always the obscure places that get me particularly you know the capital of Australia those sorts of <laughs> obscure places <laughs> like I said I play along at home and I'm like capital like it's not Sydney it's not Melbourne <laughs> I was in the exact same boat I was trying to guess along oh good I had I was like oh Canberra hmm well, mm. I officially have learned something new today <laughs> <laughs> We're not the only oh. ones, Rue. I know. And I'll never forget it either, which is great. I know. Now that I've been through that ordeal, I will never forget it. Well, this was fun. This was a this was a tight recording today. This was great. Yes. I don't know if Quick. that means I haven't haven't given enough. I don't know. I feel like I maybe no. should ramble more. Uh, <laughs> nope. No, I feel like fact. we just waste too much time on normal recordings. Poor Matt, you're no longer allowed on the show because you talk too much. <laughs> You've been replaced by Sarah. <laughs> to be fair, Matt does need the most editing, I can confirm. <laughs> <laughs> Well, at least he's back oh, next week. God. Or is he? Oh. We don't know. <laughs> oh, maybe he's listening to the show right now and he's thinking, wait, did I do something? <laughs> <laughs> well, this was a lot of fun. Love you, Sarah. Love you, Anna. Love, Love you, Rue. Love you, Anna. Anna, you have to redo that. You talk when I talk. Aww. That's not how this works. I know how this works. Well, see, here's the here's the brilliance of separate audio <laughs> tracks is that that doesn't actually matter. Anna will separate them out. Anna is a magician. But I'll say it again from the top. Love you, Rue. Love you, Sarah. Love you both. Love you, Anna. <laughs> Love you, Rue. Did that have enough feeling to it? Did that have enough motion? <laughs> <laughs> uh, uh.